and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. This is Irreverent, Faith and Current Affairs. I'm delighted to be joined today by MP for Devices and author of the new work, Covenant, the New Politics of Home, Neighbourhood and Nation, Danny Kruger. Danny, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's a delight oh, to have you. Thanks, oh. thanks for having me, Jamie. Oh, very good. Very good. Well, listen, Danny, we've just met um, and I don't know too much about you in terms of your background. I'm aware of, you know, some of your, you know, the stuff that you're up to nowadays. But I was really um, interested to read in the introduction about your sort of influences in this book. And, and to be honest, I um quite encouraged and and surprised really to see the, the the list of influences that you name. You name people like Yoram Hazoni and Patrick Deneen, who's been on this podcast, but also John Milbank as well. Now, I listeners to this podcast know that uh, I've written a book which I never ever mentioned but it was based on my uh, it was based on my DPhil and I wrote a couple of chapters on on jo- John Milbank specifically theology and social theory and I I think I think if I'm not mistaken you must have read that book as well and been and been influenced by it so I found all that very um, very impressive if I may say so and I found the book to be intellectually erudite and um, stylistically strong as well so I sort of my first question is can you tell me a little bit about your sort of intellectual and political development and background in that sense well thank you what a lovely question um I'll, I'll try and keep it brief yes I mean I'm very inspired by Milbank um Alistair McIntyre before him mm. and this tradition of um sort of critics of Thatcherism really from the from the uh from the sort of labor right which should I mean it's difficult to give these these terms um full meaning but there's a there's a tradition of writers I think in who are probably in the conservative tradition um but they identify left and their 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 sort of political affiliations are on the left um John Gray is another one mm-hmm. uh and you know, since the 80s, they've been writing about how uh, conservatism has an essential intellectual flaw, which is that it it, uh, it it relies on values and institutions and virtues, which its own policies undermine. Mm. Um, you know, obviously, the free market depends on values of trust and reciprocity and goodwill that, that, that market activity harmed. I mean, I don't fully accept that critique, but I recognise its force. And, and I think it's, uh, and I think it's at least partly true and it's very very important insight so yes yeah, so Milbank he's on the shelf there behind me somewhere um a whole bunch of others um obviously in the more you know uh familiar conservative tradition I studied Burke as a my did my defil on on Burke as a as a politician in the you know 18th century MP um mm. uh and, and his political activity um but obviously read all his um you know his writings which are of eternal and universal uh value um and so you know as most tories would i put myself in the working tradition but you know w- w- what is Burke? uh how, how how one should apply him today is i suppose the question we will struggle with whether we recognize that's the struggle or not as conservatives um i mean i i just to just to answer your question slightly more personally i mean i i, I guess i grew up I, you know i was a i was a teenager in the 80s and, and early 90s i i guess i i was always a conservative uh i was you know momentarily inspired by the neoliberal the libertarian the the, the ayn randian philosophy which i recognize it's 
it's sort of pure beauty uh, and power. But by the time I was, and then I studied Burke as well, I studied history in undergrad and then, and then Burke postgrad. So by my mid 20s, I guess I'd, I'd realized there's more to life than individual autonomy and, and the free market. And I, uh, I, I became a kind of communitarian at that point um, and then a Christian. So in that order. So I was a, I was a, was a communitarian before I was a Christian. And I actually think that to a certain extent followed. And I remember meeting the gang who ran the Conservative Christian Fellowship, Tim Montgomery, Peter Franklin, still both very active in, in conservative thought today. Mm. Um, back when we were, you know, just in the early Blair years, um, and feeling very inspired by them and mm. what they were trying to do with the Conservative Party. So that's that in a sense is my natural uh that, well that's my identity. Yes. Well, thank you for that. And I mean, that's that's fascinating. I, I'd love to go into into that in a bit more detail, but our time is limited today. So I think it's I think what we should do is we should go into the themes of the book. And I'm sure some of this will will, will spill out a bit, some of the autobiographical elements. Um, I certainly do have some questions about the, the role of the role of Christianity and a sort of transcendent understanding of of the universe, I suppose. But anyway, let's. Um, so. I was trying to sort of think of how to summarize the sort of core of your argument. And I think you begin the book by talking about how we're sort of teetering on the edge, potentially, of all sorts of problems, you know, threats from terrorist groups or global financial crashes, military dictatorships, vulnerability of globalized supply chains, energy grids, antibiotics and their potential ineffectiveness, bioweapons, weaponization of viruses, you know, and, and a general sense that the technology that we're developing, well, we're able to develop it on the one hand, but we don't necessarily have the wisdom to know how to use it or whether we should use it on the other. Um, you end the book by talking about a vision of the nation, specifically the vision of the UK and I suppose more specifically England. And all throughout the book, you have this antithesis between what you call the order and the idea. And it seems to me that the core of your argument is that if we are to um, if we are to meet these challenges and overcome them, then we need to rediscover and re-implement the order, and we need to resist the manifestation of the idea. And this is how we'll recover our our sense of nationhood, our sense of community, our sense of ourselves as a, a family and as a what you call a part, oikos, or a parish, or a neighbourhood, or something like that. So that's kind of my. That's my understanding of your sort of core argument. I mean, have I got that right? Is that basically what you're saying in this book? Yes, very good summary, Jamie. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the start, the, starting with the threats, I think it's an appropriate conservative instinct. Um, I mean, my, my party is full of talk of opportunity and, you know, modernity and uh, innovation, enterprise, all these brilliant things. And I do actually, I mean, paradoxically, I am quite optimistic personally, you know, I, I'm I'm sort of inspired by our our times, and I I can imagine things being so cheerful. But but let's start with the reasons to be fearful, and there are they are enormous. I don't know what your view is, but it doesn't. I mean, every generation thinks might 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 think this historically, but I think we've got good reason to think there had never been there's never been such a sort of concatenation of threats and mm. such absolute threats to obviously to life on earth and to to our well-being and we see all sorts of uh 
reasons to feel extremely precarious. Mm. Um, and you've listed a bunch of them. So, you know, what's going on? Deep down, I think we are in a in a in a philosophical or, or an ideological confusion, and it's a quite a familiar one. Um, in a, in every generation or every sort of era, I think this battle has to be fought, and it is the battle between what I call the idea, which as a Christian you'll recognise as the original mistake, the mistake that you or I, each of us individually, have the creative power uh, and the authority to determine what is good and evil and what is real and not real. You know, we have, we have, we have the ability to, to create uh, moral and material reality. And, uh, you know, I think that's a mistake. And it's not been the, uh, the, the, the theory that has driven our civilization over the, the centuries. A different theory has driven us, which of course is as much a practice as a theory, which is what I call the order, which is the combination of institutions, habits, expectations, and the obligations we have um, to our, to the past that between them, create the conditions in which people can be good to one another. And whereas the idea, what I call the idea, which is this idea of the sort of self-created autonomous individual, uh, unrelated, without obligations, um, uh, and, and free, essentially free of other people, um, whereas that the, the, the idea is based on, on a, I think, a, a mistaken um, idea of human reason, and in our era, you know, explicitly, you can see it in Hobbes and Locke in the, in the beginning of the modern liberal uh, political theory, uh, you know, a society built on reason, drawn rules in our time, but mm. it's the same idea going back centuries. Um, whereas the, the idea is built on this, this mistaken vision of reason, that the order is built on love, it's built on a set of uh, of obligations that are, that can't really be explained; they just exist, and they're unconditional and permanent, and they uh, and, and 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 genuinely reciprocal, and, and they can't really be broken. Uh, and it, or if they are broken, there's a permanent breach and distress as a result. So the so and the, the foundational um, idea of the order, what 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 makes the order real is this notion of the covenant which of course is a christian term really derived from the original uh themes of of the old testament around the, the promises made that god made to the people of israel but 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 as absolute application beyond that that moment um and and i think one of the great contributions of christianity has has been to apply the covenant the notion of the covenant to social organization yeah in general and um although you can see the application of social organization in the old testament too and jonathan Sachs has written brilliantly about this mm. in the context of deuteronomy but but what we've done in the sort of judeo-christian tradition however you want to attribute the, the origins is 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 make this particularly religious idea of the covenant just to just to well, you've given it secular application. And a covenant is a, unlike a contract, which is sort of transactional, and you or I could just 
break it at any time and there might be a penalty but basically it's understood it was time limited and it's only for the benefit of the two parties and it's entered into by each party for their own selfish reasons mm. the covenant is something that has far deeper and broader value and the the covenantal institutions that, that that undergird us all and make our society and you know trying to bring all this fairy stuff down to earth for you yeah, yeah. what my book's really about is uh is the covenant of the the three covenants of family neighborhood and nation and uh and and that and and at the core of each of these things family neighborhood and nation is a is is a kind of covenantal relationship for the for the family it's the marriage married relationship uh for uh for, for neighborhood it's civil society it's the institutions which make up a place which include private sector activity but also local government and so on mm. um and then for the nation it's the state yeah. uh which is a combination of power and ceremony mm. and uh and, and has sort of emotional as well as a sort of um uh, uh it, 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 it's not to be loyalty not just something to fear anyway so i've tried to explain there that you know the idea is is the is the is the mistake we're all su- su- uh, subject you know, tempted by each of us individually to be self-determined and indifferent to others and the order is the set of obligations set of institutions and obligations that make us good people and make us work well as, as a society yeah so i mean one of the things i find really interesting about that is um that you and you implied it yourself there you're almost saying that the sort of enlightenment political tradition well the way I, the way i read what you're saying and i've seen this also i think a bit in yoram hazoni's um work is that the sort of enlightenment political tradition it tries to ground the political order on the on rationality as opposed to you know the previously um the previous order which would have been ground, grounded on the notion of the sacred and and I'm not sure exactly how you'd articulate this, but because of the breakdown of that project, the the project of of political rationalism, let's say, we then move into this kind of postmodern sort of neo-Marxist space where we've sort of essentially abandoned the notion that there could be some kind of common good which is a, agreed upon rationally by people in societies. And so basically now what it is is it's up to the individual to be... Um, to be the arbiter of his own good or, or or evil, as it were. And um, on the other hand, you have this notion, this sort of concomitant notion that the state, the role of the state is not to sort of facilitate um, virtuous individuals, but it, the role of the state is to liberate people from structures of oppression and so on and so forth. So, I mean, that's, that's kind of what I took you to be saying. And the interesting thing for me, especially considering you've implied it there is that you're actually you're sort of equating this with the notion of almost original sin or you know that that sort of that that archetypal archetypal choice to you know favor myself as the individual my own sort of creation of of what i consider to be good and, and evil and so on and so forth so there's a sort of there's a deep theological component in what you're saying i suppose I mean, am i am i getting that right Yes, um, I mean, I guess there is, and I mean, I, I, I mean, I don't make any bones about thinking that the roots of our politics lie in the Christian tradition, and I think, mm. you know, as, as Tom Holland obviously and, and many others have brilliantly explained. I mean, it's absolutely mad to 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 think otherwise, and and I, and the great, you know, frustrating the pervasive error in our 
society and our culture is to somehow think that you know the progress of society and particularly the progress of liberty uh and of human rights and, and and respect for others and respect the value of each individual is somehow um has been a process of rebellion against christianity you know mm. we, we fought christianity to be free is the, yes the, I think the predominant idea is this is so totally wrong uh it is christianity that's made us free it's why freedom evolved in the christian west uh it's not in conflict with christianity although often there was conflict with the church but but mm. but it uh, you know, so so yes, we've got to whether you're a liberal and whether you're an atheist or an, 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 a militant secularist uh, or a believer, you've got to acknowledge where it all comes from, and uh, and 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 and, and, I, and I don't think this is a dead route either. I mean, there's, there's, some people might acknowledge that and say, yes, fine, thank you so much for the inheritance, but we're going to do things our way now. Yeah. Um, and we don't need any of that, or we can put it in a museum. Uh, and, you know, I think that is deeply dangerous because there's no, there's only one alternative to a politics rooted in, uh, in, uh, in our Christian heritage, which is, you know, the, which is the opposite. Yeah. Um, yeah. which yeah. is what we're getting. So, uh, I mean, I'm not saying, but of course, you know, mentioned secularism. Secularism is a Christian uh, product too, and you know the, the importance of the difference separating church and state, recognizing um, that uh, all people are equal, no matter their beliefs. That there is space for everybody, no matter their beliefs, in the in the public square and in political life. Um, that you know, we you know, possibly uniquely among the religions of the world, but I don't want to criticize others. You know, we have a tradition of tolerance and of um, uh, being ecumenical within the movement, within the Christian movement, but also uh, understanding that that freedom of conscience is 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 itself a God given principle. And so, you know, emphasizing that, so I don't want people to think on the theory actually. Yeah. Christianity, but 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 we are fundamentally in that root, and 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 still, I think, uh, our our civilization only has any meaning so far as we recognize its. Uh, that it's framed by Christianity. Um, yeah. And in terms of the role of the state, which you mentioned there, I mean, yes, yeah, so I say, I explain that, you know, whereas historically, traditionally, and I think still, and I should just quickly mention in parenthesis, you know, I think this is a, extremely modern. All that I sound and write and am inspired by the past, and want to talk about our traditions and our, our inheritance. I think there's something uniquely appropriate to the moment we're in, 21st century, with all of these threats and, and the extraordinary implications of technology. This whole agenda, when I'm describing about the order, is you know powerfully relevant to this modern moment. But anyway, mm. uh, just taking a step back, because I, I'm not ashamed to say how things used to be. Um, they used to, we used to think that the job of the state was to facilitate was to create the conditions in which people could be good so ensure that there was some strength underneath the institutions and associations that enable us to be virtuous and behave well um and to be happy and 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 strong yeah uh so the job of the uh, job of the state was and still is and should be in my view is to ensure that families and communities and the nation are strong and then and then everything becomes easier and the job of the the other job of the state, which is to sort of help people in trouble, becomes much diminished to reduce demand for that kind of help. But the, but but that's the the old idea, and what I think should be the, the new the, the future idea too. But the one we're battling with, the kind of 
20th century to early 21st century idea that we're up against is has a, has a different idea of what the state should be, which is the job of what I call facilitation, mitigation, and sanction. So it's, it's a facilitate individual autonomy, to facilitate the idea to say, you can be whatever you want to be, you can have every opportunity that, that there is going. Our job as the, the government is to is to facilitate your freedom, your individual um, personal path. Hmm. Uh, you know, which of course is really is the job of families and communities to do that, but, but we decided it's the job of the state. Um, and then, so it's, it's facilitation, and then it's mitigation. It's like dealing with the fallout of people making choices that turn out to be bad for them and bad for others. So yeah. the business of mitigation, criminal justice, welfare, a lot of our health spending, all of which is, is basically clearing up and paying for the consequences of lives gone wrong. Yeah. And, you know, I spent my career outside politics working in that space. You know, it's a fun and you will too, as a priest, you know, it's the job of human beings is to help others, particularly yeah. those whose lives have gone wrong, uh, and to do so in a supportive and non-judgmental way. I just think it's very difficult when the state takes on that role. Yeah. Um, reasons we could explore. So facilitation and mitigation are the two big jobs of, of government. And the third one is sanction, because which is when things go wrong, when, when, when it doesn't work, when you've got too much welfare, too much um, crime, suddenly the state starts get to doing what the state kind of should do, which is exercise force, but it's, it's using it on its own people Yeah. Um, to sanction, which is this terrible word that benefit claims fear, um, or, or, or impose you know, harsh justice on people. I mean, I think there is a massive job for government in terms of the administration of justice and punishment. But, um, but, but that is the thing the government increasingly is having to do. So we have a huge prison population, for example. Um, possibly not big enough given the state of crime. But, um, you know, that, 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 that traditional role of government is being there to basically impose order and, mm. and, and monopolize force. Yeah. Um, is used, you know, so much and against our own people. Um, and as I said, but possibly not enough given the state of social breakdown, but but it's not a good situation we're in yeah. when the government is facilitating irresponsibility, mitigating the effects of it, and then sanctioning uh, people when its patience snaps. Um, yeah. I just think the government could be doing so much better than those things. Yeah, so that, that sort of um, tees up my next question quite nicely because, you know, I'm, I'm very much on the same page as you when when you're talking about these things i'm thinking yeah of course of course this is the way that the government and the state should operate and so so on and so forth but it's uh, there's a there's a huge there's a huge gap between what i read in your book and what i see in terms of government policy and and the way that the state operates you know the size of the state and it's and and as you say it's involvement in those kind of areas which really should be the preserve of the family and the neighborhood and so on and so forth so i guess that's, that's the first part of my question you know this is all very well and good in terms of the realm of ideas but what what could actually ground this and the second part of my question is really is the thing that grounds this not the notion of the sacred and the supernatural and the transcendent? Um, this is the question I always feel like I'm asking. Um, it seems to me like this this isn't really possible without some kind of revival of of Christianity in in some in some real and widespread sense. Because if you don't have that transcendent vision, you've got nothing to ground the notion of the order on. Because you don't ultimately believe, or not in any kind of tangible sense, in some kind of transcendent realm of objective good of objective virtue and so on and so forth i mean i took what you were saying the bit about the order 
and and politics to be that you were essentially saying that the order is a kind of instantiation instantiation of a of, of transcendent virtue within the political realm, you know, on earth as it is in heaven, as it were. So I guess that's my question: is so yeah. we've got this massive problem here, but it seems to me that the ma- the massive problem is caused by the decline of of actual Christian belief. So what what do you think about that? Yeah, well, well put. I mean, it's a great challenge to me, and I'm, I sort of wrestle with it a lot. I mean, I you know, I'm really I'm a I'm a politician in the secular spirit i'm not a priest i don't think it's my job to go around preaching revival mm. or uh or and certainly not to say that you know we can only have a happy society if we have revival but but on the other hand you know i, I take I, I i broadly agree with what you're saying and and i, I mean so the so the i think the brilliant a brilliant aspect of the western tradition has been we we have um we reified the supernatural we've made made it real um in 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 civil society in a set of institutions that enable us to worship god through each other through through serving each other and mm. through our attachment to uh to institutions which don't have to be christian in their basis as i say the government you know institutions of leisure and care and education and so on and i think you know i'm trying to call for a revival of the value we place on these institutions locally and i think we can do that without having a an explicitly christian mission um and you know you said you know your first body question what do we do well i think there is a whole bunch of policies which i think would command widespread support from people from frankly from all physical traditions as well as all religious ones around the importance of local attachments the, the, the strength and the sort of wealth of civil society Actually, that we need that has been lost over the decades, including, sad to say, under the current government since 2010. Even though there was a bit, there was a moment in 2010 with a big society when when I thought we were going to be where we were, you know, talking the right talk. Mm. Um, so, you know, what to do? Well, there's a whole bunch of stuff around, you know, policy that we could get this for, and I do a bit in the book. Um, but your broader question about is any of it meaningful without revival? Um, and in a sense, it's the question that I wrestled with when I ran a charity with my, my wife that we will still run it. I'm chair it now. I'm working mm. in prison with ex-prisoners and used to get challenged by Christian friends saying, what's the point of helping, trying to provide help, pra- just practical help? These guys need to know Jesus. And I, and I always felt, well, that isn't sufficient. I mean, that isn't, a, I mean, yes, it, everybody does, but actually we can still do a lot just mm. providing practical help to the charities and to Christian charities. There's rehabilitation, resettlement and support that then as next offended um you know i think we can we can do a lot in this world and in this life and i don't think we need to um make revival the uh the, the sort of impediment to 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 doing good work um and i don't think that the order that i describe uh has to wait for um for for the Christian revival to break out. I think we can do a whole bunch of good stuff mm. now. Um, but, but as I said at the beginning, you know, I think we should recognise that the root of all of what we're talking about is a is a set of ideas that that have, you know, one dominant root yeah. or origin. I mean, there are others too in, in sort of Greek, Greece and so on. But fundamentally, our civilization is built on these ideas, and yeah, um, and it's not a dead root. It's 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 still living. 
Yeah, well, this is this is the the place where I really was reminded of of Milbank and and specifically the notion, you know, what he talks about in theology and social theory, which had a big it had a big impact on me the first time I sort of came across this idea of sort of our metaphysical understanding kind of informing our political and social outlook. And the I don't I don't think you use this phrase in 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 your book, but um, Milbank talks about the sort of postmodern nihilism being undergirded by what he calls an ontology of violence, you know, so a sort of a, a, a belief that deep down at the kind of bottom of everything is, you know, there's just a play of kind of chaotic forces as, as you know, is articulated by postmodernists like, um, you know, people like uh, Deleuze and uh, Derrida and people like that. Like essentially, essentially reality is a play of, of violence. And so if you actually believe that, it's not a surprise that the sort of social and political outworking of that will be fundamentally nihilistic. Um, and so to me, like the sort of the inverse of that is that, well, if that's if that's the case for an ontology of violence, for an ontology of peace, you need at least some kind of you need some kind of transcendental transcendental sorry basis undergirding your politics. So I'm not saying that I think I think it necessarily needs to be explicitly Christian. I think in our context, it's hard to conceive of how it could be not informed by Christianity. Um, but there does seem to me to be a, a, a really primal and significant connection between that sort of metaphysical underpinning, like what you believe reality really is at base, and then how things are outworked in the social and political. Does that make sense? It does, it does. That's well put, and I agree with that. And I think the you know, the, the, the fact is that we are made for worship, we're made to... Uh, acknowledge uh, transcendental uh, and to orient our lives towards it. And mm. uh, people who don't acknowledge that and know, in fact, they're more susceptible to it. Yeah. Because yeah. they don't realise that, 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 that they're being pushed in that direction. They'll find something to worship and not even realize they're doing it. Um, and of course, my, you know, I argue that, well, I might make the point in the book that, you know, early man, pre-Christian pagan man was really about the worship of, of nature. Mm. Then in you know, a wood and stone and the stars and the waters and so on. And then we started worshiping God and now we're worshiping ourselves. Um uh and so there is a transcendental at the heart of all. And uh I think that I think that increasingly we're recognizing that. I mean the, the loss of God uh has 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 not made us um, less religious. Uh, it, it, it's just created a whole bunch of wacky new religions, of which, you know, environmentalism is a is a key one and, and actually yeah. reflects a lot of that old pagan idea of the worship of, yeah. of nature. Um, so I think people are absolutely, you know, fundamentally disposed to a spiritual politics. Mm. Uh, and there is a reaction to the the sort of rationalist, overly human, you know, uh, you know, stress on the on, on sort of practical efficiency, which has dominated our political discourse in my lifetime. And I think we are seeing a growth of a new and more exciting politics. The problem is it's potentially extremely dangerous because mm. people are attaching to, 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 to fundamentalisms. Yeah. Um, yeah. Of, of left and right, of religious, as I say, sort of pagan ideas. Um, so I'm hoping that, that people will recognise that given we've got to worship something and we've got to build up 
build our politics on 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 some kind of transcendental uh, understanding. The best and safest and richest. Yeah. Uh, one is the traditional, um, yeah. which, as I said a minute ago, is I think peculiarly appropriate as of course it would be. But it is remarkably appropriate to the challenges of the modern time. Um, yeah. And dealing with technology. Yeah. Um, dealing with globalization uh, and you know legal movements and civilizational clashes that we're seeing. Um, so that's that's why I'm hopeful. Yeah. Well, and that that seems like a good place to talk uh, to move into a discussion of um, well, new political manifestations. I mean, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about was the the national conservatism movement and the national conservatism conference that you spoke at. I think it was it was earlier this year, wasn't it? Um, in that in that conference, uh, in your speech, um, you said something like that. The you said I, I forget the exact quote, but it was something like it was pretty close to. The only stable basis for a society is a is a is the family, you know, married parents and, and children or something like that. Now, this was a remark that um, created some controversy. We spoke about this on on the podcast. Um, it was said by uh, one of your colleagues that this was a, a completely fringe view in the Conservative Party, that this was uh, extremely offensive, that it was very wrong. And that if you continue talking like this, you'll put the Conservatives out of power for a generation. Um, so I, I suppose I just wanted to ask you about that movement, you know, the, the sort of NatCon movement, how you see that, whether you see hope in that. And also specifically that that kind of pushback that you got after after that conference and, and indeed when you say these kind of things in general. Yeah, I mean if it's true that that this you know pretty uncontroversial idea that society is built on families and families are built on uh couples, um and married couples most of all, then you know if that's fringe, we are in a world of trouble, aren't we? Um mm-hmm. but but in a sense we are. <laughs> and and it is. Um Yes, so yeah, I mean, I, I I periodically say things which strike me as, I mean, they might be a bit pithy. That's the problem. Mm. Say these sorts of things in a sort of elaborate way and with all the usual caveats and so on, and nobody nobody notices. But but I say things occasionally that that ignite controversy because they're a soundbite that can be clipped, and then somebody and then then other people pile in saying how outrageous. Mm. Um, I mean, the Conservative Party is obviously, you know deeply uh torn on these questions as is labor party and you know there's our whole culture reasons no surprise there um you know i regret that my party is not more vocally uh representative of what i think of its own philosophy it's its supporters i mean our voters our, our members are very much more socially conservative than well i just think socially real i mean real realism uh what we are um than uh than the physical class but a lot of my colleagues think that the political class is their is their audience, um, rather than the public. And uh so yeah, I mean that conference, I mean, so I mean I I'm I Hazoni, who you mentioned, you know, uh Israeli American professor, uh written wonderfully about conservatism and about um and this national conservative idea, which uh I'm sure you explored it. Yeah. Previously. But um and 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 his organization, which is called the Edmund Burke Foundation, so obviously I'm gonna like it, uh set runs these conferences around the world. And they did one in London. I spoke at it, a bunch of other colleagues did from the from Parliament. And you know, it was just really, really good. Uh it was full of young people, full of ideas, a big tension in it. I mean, people accused it of incoherence, which I think is, is valid. I mean, that 
but it's the it's the incoherencies at the heart of conservatism that we discussed at the very beginning, which is mm. between the kind of liberal free market agenda and conservative, socially conservative, communitarian family nation, a family and nation agenda. And you know, the tension between those things is the tension within each of us between our desire to be free and our desire to belong. And I think it's okay to have that tension expressed. And it was discussed at the conference. There was lots of really good speeches mapped out. You know, just showed the vitality intellectually and and sort of socially of of the conservative movement. So I think it was great, and yes, it annoyed all the right people. Mm. Um, I mean, no doubt we could have they could have been a bit better at their treating. I thought the organisers didn't quite understand the subtleties of British political Twitter. Yeah, uh, um, and we. You know, ended up aggravating people unnecessarily. I think with with, with those sort of standalone clips. Mm. But, you know, that, it's, politics is a bit rough, and it's, it is slightly conducted in, in headlines and sound bites. So there we are, and and I think we've got a set of principles on the map, and there's a confidence on the right in conservatism at the moment. So unrelated to the national conservative agenda and conference and so on, Miriam Cates, my my MP friend, and I set up a little outfit which is um called the new social government unit a couple of years ago mm. um focused on family policy and and neighborhood stuff civil society but we're now working with a bunch of um, a wider bunch of mps and we call ourselves the new conservatives we're all elected since 2016 since the referendum on brexit mm. we stand for this realignment in our politics this idea that we can be a national party like we were after the 2019 election yeah, representing seats from all over the country with these, you know, authentic, I think, quite traditional conservative ideas, but also, you know, not constrained by politics of the past, and you know, able to articulate, I think, a really exciting vision for the future. So the new conservatives, you know, we are we are pushing a whole bunch of these ideas, and you know, trying to do so in a way that doesn't cause trouble for the leadership, because. You know, we're close, getting close to an election now. We need to be constructive yeah. and supportive as we are of Rishi. Um, nor do we think we need to just shut up now and, you know, stop thinking and speaking. I think we have an obligation as MPs to make our, keep, make, make our, our ideas known. Um, yeah. As long as they're not in, you know, direct conflict with the, with our colleagues, with our, with the party. Um, so that's what we're up to. And I think there's a lot of energy in the space now. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, I've got one more sort of general um, question, which sort of falls out of your book. Um, this podcast was, uh, we started this podcast about three years ago. It was, in, it was in the middle of the sort of lockdown periods and everything like that. One of the reasons we did it is because we were, Tom and I at first, and then Daniel joined us afterwards, uh, we were concerned that we weren't really hearing from the church uh, what we what we felt the church should have been doing or saying, which you know, providing spiritual leadership for people, and we were, I think it's fair to say, extremely skeptical about what was going on in terms of lockdowns, in terms of the so-called non pharmaceutical interventions, and so on and so forth. Um, therefore, I was intrigued to read at the beginning of your book that you, um, that, well, as a matter of historical record, that you voted in favour of at least some of the lockdown measures, but you actually used a strong word. You said something like that you were ashamed to have done so or something like that. I, I, I apologise if that's not precisely the right word, but it was something like that. So I'm interested to ask you about that. And then I hope you don't mind me asking you about this as well. But I noticed that you were, I think it was it uh, Andrew Bridgen's adjournment debate was was yesterday. I think I noticed that you were, you were present at that. 
Um, so I wanted to ask you just if you could just let us uh, just elaborate a bit more for our audiences in, in terms of that comment that you make in, in, in your book about that sense of shame you talk about. And then just anything you could say about the the Andrew Bridget. Andrew's actually been on this podcast uh, several months ago now. Uh, it, I mean, obviously, that's a controversial issue, um, but yeah. I'd, be, I'd be really interested in that. Yeah. OK, thanks. Yeah, so I, I, I was I was a late convert to kind of COVID or lockdown scepticism. I supported or immediately to begin with. Um, and, you know, it, it, in fact, I was partly in, very inspired by the behaviour of the country during the during 2020 in the lockdowns. Um, mm. while, while part of the country was going mad and lying about George Floyd and um, we were there's all sorts of crazy kind of culture stuff going on. Most people getting on with being good neighbours, good citizens, doing what they're asked by the government, helping each other out locally. There's all sorts of innovation in, in local public services and businesses. So I, I, I thought there's something great going on here. And I wrote a paper, I mean, a report um, for, the, for the government about how to learn the lessons, the positive lessons of lockdown for creating stronger communities. So all that was really encouraging. And I thought, oh, it'll pass and I trust the government. And actually, but two years after, within you know, two years of it, I realised that there was, a, there was much more... I'm aligned. Not, I don't blame any individual. I don't think, I'm not one of those who thinks that there's some sort of evil conspiracy to do harm. I, I, I think a lot of people, good people, trying to do their best, and that happened. Uh, and you know, we were, uh, we were all, all as politicians trying to muddle our way through. So I don't, I don't, like I said, I don't. I mean, I think individuals ultimately do need to take responsibility. Decision makers do, but I'm not interested in blame. I, I think the system as a whole failed us. We are as citizens, sort of went along too meekly with a bunch of stuff. But crucially, most of where I feel the shame you mentioned is as an MP, Parliament just went on leave. I mean, we literally just abandoned our job through those two years, I think. Mm. I mean, again, you can understand why, and we can make explanations and so on. I don't blame individuals particularly, but you know, I am to blame as an MP for having supported all sorts of things, allowing them to use the Public Health Act, uh, which basically gave carte blanche to government to do what it likes, uh, without even a debate. Mm. Uh, and anyway, there's all sorts of, I think, things that were done wrong and that we recognize. Some brave people, bright people mentioned, recognized it at the time, but it's, it's obvious with hindsight that I think our response was wrong in many, many ways. Uh, and the British state wasn't up to the job that it should have been. Um, and Parliament let us down. So that's, yeah, I'm quite, uh, and I apologize particularly for voting for the sacking of care workers who didn't take the vaccine. I, I deeply regret that vote. Um, I've said so publicly. Um, and you know, I've been working with this outfit, Us for Them, which is a campaign that campaigned against lockdowns on behalf of children. Uh, they've been writing a report about the whole episode, and I've just contributed in a kind of afterward to that. Which, hmm. um, uh, I hope will, um, uh, well, try and try to convey my account of it all. Um, so yeah, I, and and you know I mentioned it in the book because I think you've got to worry about the next one, whether it's a pandemic or some sort of other disaster. You know, one of yeah. these threats that will assail us. The obvious thing to do will be for the states to reach for maximum power, for the media to to row in behind them, saying yes, yes, please, please tyrannise over us, for the public to say we're scared, please take away our freedom, um, and uh, and for all sorts of you know sinister forces, which I don't, as I said, don't think there are. I mean, we can spiritualize this, but I, I, I don't, I don't think there's a great global conspiracy. I just think that there are all organisations try and aggrandise and take power, 
And if we say to the state or to the to the kind of global state, World Health Organization or others, you know, please take charge because we're terrified. Uh, if we undermine national sovereignty, if we understand undermine parliamentary accountability, if we undermine the responsibilities of local neighborhoods to each other, fam the obligations of families, and fundamentally if we remove human freedom, individual freedom, uh, things will go very wrong for us. So mm. Need to be very conscious of these dangers, and particularly when we've empowered the state and and the private sector with technology, which has you know incredible immense potential to to do harm as well as to do good. I think we are uh, we are we are in some danger at the moment, and mm -hmm. so we need to deal with right and understand what happened during COVID. Yeah. Yeah. And any comment on Andrew Bridgen and his activity? Well, I think I mean I I think um, Andrew has been brave. I mean I think I don't. I mean I'm not I'm not a scientist. I don't really feel equipped to comment on all of his theories about the vaccines. Um, I do think there should be a proper um, sort of review into the excess deaths phenomenon, which is very serious. I mean we have a real genuine problem, and a lot of people ascribe it to the vaccine program. And therefore, I think and I think sufficient people think that that. Government is, should be uh, undertaking a proper review, even if only to disprove that anxiety that people have that the vaccines are causing these deaths. Um, uh, and uh, and I and I think, yeah, I think I think Andrew has been um, has been brave. I don't think he's always necessarily championing the cause in the most constructive way. But but I'm not who I might have him. I think in the sense is. Well, he's doing the job of an MP, which is speaking up and, you know, good for him. He's become an independent MP or joined a new party now. Um, I think it was wrong that he lost the whip for that, for that remark uh, he made, but, but he is very independent-minded, so I think he might be happier where he is. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay. Well, thank you, uh, Danny. I know I know you, your time is up, so I, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and giving such um, clear and interesting answers to my questions. Uh, the book Covenant, The New Politics of Home, Neighbourhood and Nation is, is available now, isn't it, widely online? I think it's just in, is it just in hardback at the moment? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, thank you, Danny. Really appreciate it. <laughs>